0: Let's continue once again this morning in our overview of Romans here at the end, chapter 15, verses 14 through 21, Satisfaction of Bold Ministry. Now, as we've been doing this review here in Paul's letter to the Romans, the intro keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it will continue to here for a week or two more until we've encompassed the whole book. Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he says that he is not ashamed but instead that he is eagerly obliged to the gospel. A gospel that is nothing less than the power of God to salvation. The wrath of God revealed against men, and the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for them, as we saw today, yes, even ransoming back his people to himself, purchasing our lives with the very lifeblood of Jesus Christ, so that he who is just might also be the justifier. Abraham believed God, and yet it was reckoned to him as something more. It was reckoned to him as the very righteousness of God himself, the power of God on display, faith credited as saving righteousness. And having been so justified through that very gift of faith, we rejoice, literally, we boast in the hope of God. For we were dead born in the image of Adam. From dust we came, and to dust we would return. But in Christ we live because in Christ we die. We are people who know our identity. That by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we are risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. In a profound identity it is, life from death. God calling into existence that which did previously not exist, all by the work of His Spirit, for it cannot be by the work of men. Men are enslaved to their own being. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 8 and says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but the saints, if you're truly a saint, have a new being. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact... The Spirit of God dwells in you. Therefore, we can make the most audacious of all statements that indeed for us all things work for good. That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. So I ask you today simply this, are you called of God so that you can say, yes, all of these things work for my good? And you say, well, pastor, how do I know if I'm called of God? Friend, do you love God? Do you love God? What this little boy does this morning. Do you you love God? Not not, do you love the things that God can give you. Do you love him? Because, friend, if you do, you are called that is the nature and the product of his effectual calling and man if that's you friend you may have had some hard days but you've never once had a bad one we are called not according to any old purpose God did not haphazardly call to his children But instead we're called according to the very purpose of God Himself. For salvation belongs to the Lord. Romans chapter 9 verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. Friends the good news of the gospel is this. Is that mercy and compassion are not opposed to (laughs) God's justice. But instead mercy and compassion are part and partial to God's justice. Friends our God will not be accused certainly not by his creatures. Instead, he will be glorified, both for his wrath and for his mercy. For concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart breaks for the lost. Those brothers of his in the flesh that lacking the intimacy the the love that comes with the call of God, lacking the intimacy of salvation, they established a system that they could handle according to their own terms. They called it law, and yet it was insufficient to bring salvation to them, for God's glory is not found in man's law, but instead God's glory is found in the word of faith. It is near you, in your heart, and in In your mouth, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And knowing this, we find ourselves to be very bold. Bold in evangelism. Understanding the difference between the means and the cause. We understand that God has ordained for us to be the means, but Christ is the cause by which men are saved. And being the means is more than sufficient. It is a beautiful thing. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Will all be saved? No. Faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. For us, success is not necessarily in people accepting the good news of the gospel, though our heart breaks for them to do so. Instead, success is the faithful proclamation of the good news, and we will trust our God to produce the effect. What about Israel? Many similar promises of the gospel were made to them. What about Israel? Let me tell you what about Israel, friends? Christ is faithful. That's what about Israel? He has not abandoned his people Israel. Instead, those brothers of Paul, according to the flesh, that had been hardened, a partial hardening had come upon them until the fullness of the Gentiles, that being me and you, have been grafted in. The result is that the Gentile church in their suffering, even enduring until the very end, is the very means that God ordains to provoke jealousy in the heart of his people Israel. So on the day when they look to the eastern sky and gaze on him whom they pierced, that God will open a fountain of grace and please for mercy for them. And Jew and Gentile together will be saved. Church, we are that body ordained to provoke to jealousy. When Paul says that we're the living sacrifice, he says a mouthful. You are the miracle that God is doing. If you're born again, if you're saved, if you're the new creature, that creature, that creation is the miracle being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ that God is doing. He's not simply moving your name from one list to another, from group A to group B. He's creating something that is genuinely alive, sentient beings that are aware and living and feeling and desiring the things of the kingdom that out of that desire they may go and do. And friends, in God's perfect design, we are not all the same. We're as unique in Christ as we can be. Perfectly equipped to the role for which we were designed So go forth and fulfill your role. Be what God called you to be. And let love be genuine. Let it be real. The Greek literally means without pretending. And don't don't, don't try to pretend your love into some form that it's not. Just let it be conformed to Christ. (laughs) Be who you are. Don't pretend. Instead, agape. Literally, with great intention of the will, desire and do the best for your God, for your brother, for your sister, even for your enemy. Or as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Be subject to the governing authorities that God ordains. Owe nothing except for love. For God has great expectations for his people. God has expectations for both the strong and for the weak among his children. For the strong, he expects you not to despise the weak, but instead to bring them along that they may cease being weak and become strong in Christ. For the weak, God expects you not to pass judgment on the strong, for you are in no position to do so, but instead for us both together to understand that salvation is indeed nearer to us now than when we first believed. And it is time, church. It is time to wake from sleep. To understand that if we live, we live unto the Lord. And if we die, we die unto the Lord. For we are the Lord's, and each one will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, do not pass judgment as though you or I were the arbiter between good and evil, but instead uphold the judgment that God himself has passed. And decide never to be a stumbling block or to put a hindrance in the way of another, for there is priority in Christian character, friends. Now look, there is no doubt, for freedom Christ set you free. But freedom is not the highest priority in the kingdom of God. Love is and we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Not out of obligation for the weak, but instead out of obligation and love for Christ who did the very exact same thing for us and into whose image we are being conformed so that the God of endurance and encouragement may grant us hope and harmony with one another. That with one voice we may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For that is exactly what Christ came to do. To elicit the glory of God. That he became the servant to the circumcision. Literally to his own law in order to do two things. To confirm all of the promises that were made to the patriarchs. And that Gentiles like you and I might glorify God for his mercy. That was the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is the ministry that we are being conformed to and a bold ministry it is. So quickly this morning in chapter 15, continuing in verses 14 through 21. As a matter of fact, if we're going to go with 14, let's just go ahead and go with 13 so we can get the context for Paul's satisfaction. Paul writes in verse 12 and says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is what Paul wants for them. And here's his estimation. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be the minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. and Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Christ came as a servant to the circumcision in order to confirm the promises that were made to the patriarchs and that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And so Paul says, now Gentiles, out of this priestly service of the gospel, be the very thing that glorifies God. And he is bold in his writing. As we draw to the end of the book of Romans and we start really putting the big pieces together, we can say that what began in chapter 1 with a declaration of the gospel both to Jews and Gentiles has found its ordained end in the purpose of the gospel for both Jews and Gentiles. An end unto hope. Paul did it this way in chapter 1. He gives us the beginning declaration of the gospel In chapter 15, he gives us the end purpose of the gospel. And again, down the page in chapter 15, he gives us the resulting hope that is going to flow out of that. In the beginning, he declared his purpose. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What was declared in chapter one came to the fulfillment of its purpose in chapter 15 in verses 8 through 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant of the circumcision to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy and because God always accomplishes all his ends, that end purpose has resulted in the very hope that he sent it Four, Chapter 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Friends, between the unashamed audacity of the declaration and the gloriously ordained purpose of its end, in between those two places lie the heights and depths of the glory and the mystery of God in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Man, Romans chapter 1 through 15 is packed to the literal gills. As a matter of fact, when Paul is talking about it here, he has to grab three separate words out of the Greek just so that you can get into your mind how stuffed full of goodness this thing actually is. And for his part, considering what has been and what has come, and now is put to the quill in his hand, Paul is satisfied with what has come. Once again in chapter 15, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is satisfied with what the gospel has accomplished thus far amongst the Romans. And at this point in time... That seems, quite frankly, like something that's a little bit strange to say. I mean, here you have an apostle, and he's proclaiming about a church that is, you know... As a body is in the midst of the process that his that he teaches about very specifically in Romans chapter eight and nine about how salvation starts in eternity past with the the foreknowledge the the burning heart of God and moves to God's plan and then moves to the call and moves moves to his glorification I mean moves to his justification sanctification into glorification these people are smack dab in the middle of a process that has not yet come to completion and yet Paul says he's satisfied. 5. This seems strange. It seems strange both specifically and generally. I mean, specifically when it comes to the Romans, especially considering the content of this letter, which at the moment that he wrote that he was satisfied with them, they hadn't even received this yet. I mean, by definition, he was still writing it. They don't have it. And the content herein has often been called the greatest letter that is ever written. And yet, specifically with the church at Rome, Paul indicates his satisfaction. And for someone in my position and for your position, even more generally so, it seems odd to say that he is satisfied or that you would ever say that you are satisfied with Christian maturity with anything short of glory. Glory man, until you see him face to face, we have not yet come to our full. We need to understand what Paul means in his satisfaction. Paul is not satisfied as though the absolute standard of the gospel had been met, or that Paul would even be able to stand as judge to whether it had been met or not. I mean, this is the guy that wrote to the Corinthians, in his first letter to them in chapter 4, in verses 3 through 4, and said, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So, Paul, talking about, you know, meeting the standard of God says, look, even when it comes to myself personally, he says, I I don't know of anything that I have standing against me, but that doesn't mean I'm cool. Man, there could be sin in me that I'm not even aware of. I'm not worthy of judging myself. It is God that will judge me. It is before him and his glory and grace that I will stand or fall. So when Paul speaks about his satisfaction with the Romans, he's not talking about he's satisfied that they've arrived. Hey boys, you did great. Just kick back and take it easy from here on out. That is not what Paul is saying. Instead, what he is saying is that he believes certain realities about the Romans to be true. And those realities are good things. This particular word for satisfaction, translates out of the Greek as trust or sure or confidence. means you're certain of some piece of knowledge. It's used in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 12 through 13, where speaking of Christ, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust, again, I am satisfied in him. Or in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, For I am sure, I am satisfied that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says he's satisfied, he's certain that the power of God to hold his people is absolutely unassailable. Likewise, in Philemon 21, confident, satisfied of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And So here we have Paul, and he speaks to them, not as though they've arrived and there is nothing else left to do in Christ, but instead about his confidence, his surety, That the things that Christ has ordained are indeed being manifest in them. Paul is sure and confident. He trusts and is satisfied because there are things about the Romans that can only come from the Spirit of God himself that he believes to be real. Most namely, goodness and knowledge and the fullness thereof. Friends, Paul is satisfied with what is going on at the church at Rome, but godly satisfaction is not stagnation. Godly satisfaction is not stagnation. Another apostle, Peter, in his second epistle in chapter 1 and verses 3 through 11 speaks of the same concept and he speaks of it in this manner. Peter says that his divine power, that being Christ's, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, okay, because God did this in you, it produced something. The miracle of God that we call salvation, this gospel of Jesus Christ, whose end goal, was to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and so that Gentiles like me and you could glorify God for his mercy. This very gospel, man, it did something in you. It created something that wasn't there before. And creatures act. They act out of the nature of their beings. For this very reason, do something. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says... That if this has occurred to you and that you are born again by the power of God, that it will create something in you and it will create a list of attributes that are reflective of the attributes of Christ, for it is to him who saved us into which we are being conformed. And those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Friends, He didn't save you to put your name on a list or to set you on a shelf. He saved you to be conformed to the image of His Son. And here's what that looks like. Add this to this and that to the other. And as long as these qualities are yours and increasing, it puts us at a place of satisfaction. The knowledge that there is something true, that there is something sure that is happening here. And what is true and sure and satisfying is the very work of the hand of God Himself. Therefore, because that's true, you get to be bold. You get to be bold. Man, I like a bold kid. Because the work that's being done is not the work of men, but is the very work of God. Amen. Oh, we feign boldness. But men will never in righteousness be bold of their own accord. They might be bold of their own accord in sinfulness, but men will never be bold of their own accord in righteousness because they don't have the stuff to back it up. You can't go forth and be bold about turning the world upside down if you can't actually go turn the world upside down. However, When what's being done is being done by the power of an omnipotent God instead of finite men. And finite men are simply the means by which this message comes and not the effectualness thereof. All of a sudden, boldness is front and center. Peter speaks about it like this. Well, let let me finish. I I stopped in verse 9. Let's continue. Because there's the opposite side of this coin, too. If these are yours and increasing... Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Guys, Paul and Peter are doing the exact same thing. Paul says, look, guys, I am satisfied in you. I am sure of the things that I see the Lord doing in you. And by the way, I wrote to you about some really bold stuff. Well, Paul, if if you're sure, then why do you need to be so bold? It's the same thing Peter's doing. Peter says, because the nature of these things is that if it's really yours, they're there and increasing. And if it's not, they won't be. And so what I'm here to do is to come in and pour gasoline on your fire. I'm here to tell you every day, even though I can say in surety, I see it in you, so let me tell you about it some more. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter's not talking to people who are ignorant here. Peter's writing to people that understand the stuff he's writing about. And he says, that's why I'm writing it to you. Because this word is effectual. I don't have time this morning, so I'm not going to twist off on the effectual nature of the Scripture of God. But let me tell you something. This word divides bone and marrow. It speaks life where there was only death and causes to exist that which did not previously exist. It works. It works to bring little boys and little girls and, and, and middle-aged men and women and, and, and old men and women from, from death to life and it works to continue to conform that new life to the image of Christ until the day of their glorification you need to hear it if you're lost you need to hear it if you're saved and it is the same word over and over and over and over Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I mean, Peter literally says, dude, I'm about to bite it like hard. They're going to kill me. So, between now and then, if you live, you live to the Lord, and if you die, you die to the Lord. That's what Paul said. So, let's get it done. I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And God blessed his efforts because there he is 2,000 years later on the page reminding you of these very things. Now, Peter and Paul... Nobody has a copyright on the truth. They're both speaking the same truth. All of the promises to the patriarch find their yes in Christ. I expect what Peter and Paul says to be basically the exact same thing. I mean, I know one's going to come in high Greek of an educated mind and one's going to come from a Galilean fisherman, but they're both saying the same stuff. You find somebody saying something different, they're a liar and the truth ain't in them. And so here's Paul, he's doing the exact same thing. I myself am satisfied about you brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another but on some things I have written to you very boldly. Why? The same reason. By way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me. Why? To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. He said, this is the grace that God gave me to do this very thing, to write to you boldly, and we can write boldly because it's not about the work of men, it is about the work of God. And boldly, Paul writes, arguably some of the boldest stuff that has ever been written. I mean, you got to go to like some King David Psalm 2 kind of stuff. To get in Gospel of John chapter 14 15 16 17 I mean you got I mean this is pretty rare air, folks as a matter of fact this word for boldness is used here and only here in the New Testament it's not used anywhere else it's used one time and it means audaciously shocking. Paul says, there's stuff in here that if your chin doesn't hit the floor when you read it, it's because you didn't understand what you just read. Shocking, daring. Kind of stuff that makes committees uncomfortable. May need to rework the verbiage. Paul writes boldly to them both in his theology and in the accountability of Christians thereof. I mean, if you just run down the text, and we're not going to do the review again because we took 15 minutes to do it already, but I mean, if you just run down the text, the contents of the first 14 chapters of Romans is some of the boldest, most audacious, most clearly shocking, straightforward... Theology that you will find anywhere in Scripture, even amongst the other writings of Paul. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying any of it disagrees with it, it's just everywhere else Paul takes it a little easier. I'll give you three or four chapters to explain one concept. Here I'm just going to hit you right in the face with three or four verses. Grand theological concepts. The total depravity of man in chapter 1, a debased mind. Homosexuality is the specific result of the willful, intentional abandonment of God. God justifying sinners while still remaining just in chapter 3. We take that for granted today, guys. That is a wild concept that you can look down and say to someone who is guilty, you're no longer guilty, and yet you remain just in being the judge. That's crazy. took the very power of God and the willingness to sacrifice his own son to get the job done. Chapter 4, the promise to Father Abraham, the man of faith, with children of faith, that most of the church doesn't grasp to this day. The fact that men are slaves in chapter 6, that they're born slaves to sin, and that somehow by becoming slaves to righteousness, they actually become free. Chapter 8, that we are heirs with Christ That we, literally, the children of Adam, from dust and to dust, have been made through the adoption of Jesus Christ, the sons and daughters of the living God. Crazy. Chapter 9, God's sovereign choice in His purpose in election. There's more than one pastor He would have to lie to you if they didn't admit what they'd really like to do is take a razor blade and just cut that one right out. The grafting. Chapter 10 and 11, Jew and Gentile dependent upon one another as God's ordained means of salvation and all of the sacrifices for each of them both corporately and individually that that entails chapter 12 through 14, the difficult realities of being the living sacrifice. Because friends, if the theology is this tough, then the execution isn't going to be a picnic either. Submitting to authorities, welcoming the weak, guarding your brother. And here in chapter 15, the end of it all, confirmation and glorification. But it's not just in his doctrine that Paul writes to them boldly. He writes to them boldly because what is being accomplished is being accomplished by the Spirit of God Himself. And so he writes to them boldly about the things of the doctrines of the gospel, but he writes to them boldly about personal accountability. He says stuff like Romans chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Or Romans chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously chargeth with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, friends, that's bold accountability. When you got an apostle that starts slinging around stuff like, your condemnation is just, that's some pretty shocking, audacious stuff. Romans 6, 1-3, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Not being. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Or as he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 36, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now today, you can read that and maybe you can allegorize it a little bit. When this letter was being written to a church in Rome that had a coliseum that would be specifically used for the slaughtering of Christians as sheep, it was a little more nitty-gritty. Oh man, chapter nine, verse 14 through 20. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Not being. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You know, sometimes I think we... I don't think I know. There is a pressure that is placed on preachers and pastors and Sunday school teachers, upon Christians that are explaining and testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ out of the book of Romans. There, there, is, there is a very real pressure there, often by other Christians, to turn the boldness knob down a little bit. And one of one of the ways that that's often expressed is is you know you, you need to you need to um, you need to confirm to people that you understand that these things are hard. Well, I don't know if I do or not. Paul didn't. However. I agree that you need to confirm to people that you understand that these things are hard. We just did the shotgun list, and man, there's a bunch of hard stuff in there. Some of it's hard to understand intellectually. Some of it's hard to process emotionally. I'm good with telling people that, listen, some of this stuff is hard as long as what we understand is the reason it's hard is because... There's still a whole lot more flesh in us than we would like to admit and a whole lot less conformity to Christ than any of us would like to admit. And that's why the truth of Christ is hard. If we we can come to that, then amen, amen, I'm there. But if we're going to be honest, what it is, is we want you to confess it's hard as though you're sorry that it says what it says and you kind of wished it said something else. Anathema to that. Paul can write boldly and be satisfied. And he can write boldly, I would submit to you, because he is satisfied. He is satisfied in what God is doing and in the manner that God is doing it amidst the Romans. Even, and I want you to understand, when I say God that Paul can write boldly because he is satisfied, that he is not simply satisfied with the outcome to the Romans. But he is satisfied in the fact that God himself is the one that is doing it, and the manner in which God chose to do it, even if that is not the way that Paul would have chose to have done it. Because Paul wouldn't have chose to have done it this way. Paul wouldn't have chosen to write to them boldly the letter that he wrote. Paul had in mind to do it a different way. Paul had it in mind to do a way that he believed was better now, I'm not saying that once God revealed that to him, there's a whole sermon on this in the original series. I'm not saying once that God revealed that to him, that Paul dug his feet in and said, Oh no, it's going to be my way or thy way. But I mean, in the innocence of his mind, Paul had an idea that he thought this is the way the gospel needs to come to the Romans, and it was not this way. Paul thought he knew something better. And he spoke about it immediately when writing this letter to them in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. And so if you go back to Romans chapter 1, in verse 8, Paul says this. First, and this is, this is really the first address in the letter. I mean, this is the first content. Everything that comes in the verses 1 through 7, while fully inspired by God and full of awesome theology, is really just part of the introduction. And this is eating on Paul. Paul says, I pray all the time that after all of this time, after all of this persecution, after all of these missionary trips, years and years and years and years long, I've been trying to get to you, to proclaim the gospel to you face to face and person to person. And I'm praying every day that somehow by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Jews or Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul had a plan when this deal started, and the plan was not the book of Romans. The plan was to go in person to Rome. Because man, if you've got a message that this is this important to impart to someone, there is no better way, quote unquote, in the mind of a man than to do it face to face. I guarantee you guys, last thing I wanted to do when I proposed to Sarah was to do it in a letter. You want to do that kind of stuff face to face. It's the way things of heavy emotional concern work with people. And Paul said, listen, man, I had a way in my mind that I thought was the good way. And I tried. I didn't kick against the bit when God said, nope, not Rome, Ephesus. I went to Ephesus. But I had this idea that God hindered me from. And I thought this was what it was supposed to look like. I had an expectation of what God's goodness to the church in Rome was going to look like. And now I'm writing to you, having it been made very clear that that was not God's purpose and not his best good. That he had something else in mind that was different than what I thought. That was harder than what I thought that was more astonishing than what I thought. And I am satisfied in it. Because it is God and God alone who does it. And not only does He do it, but He does it in order, just as it is written, that those who have never been told of him will see him, and those who have never heard will understand. Man, Paul thought he knew the way that was going to be the best, why in the world wouldn't it be? This is the largest city on the face of the planet. It is the capital of the empire and the center of the civilized world. Why in the world wouldn't you send your best scholar there to proclaim the good news? And the reason why is if because you did, you wouldn't get the letter to the Romans. Paul preached to thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, Because God knew better what Paul would have preached to hundreds of thousands in Rome has been preached to billions. Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. It wasn't the way Paul would have done it. It wasn't the way I would have done it. It was the way that God did it. And in his satisfaction, Paul was bold. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the boldness of your people that comes only because only because of the fact that what is being accomplished is being accomplished by you. Lord, we are sufficient. We are sufficiently satisfied to simply be your ordained means and we praise you for allowing us to do it. Lord, we pray that that your name would be glorified in the midst of your people. Lord, we pray that people that, that are lost, Lord, would believe today. Lord, we pray that your people would be sanctified. And we ask it all for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen.